You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Good morning, Cities Church. Great to be with you. We are in the second week of our four-week sermon series on the heart of the gospel. And uh, several weeks ago, as we were preparing for this sermon series, Pastor Jonathan sent me an email and he asked me, what passage of scripture or verses would you say really are the heart of the gospel. And I immediately knew what verse I wanted to uh, respond back. Then he said, but however, there's a caveat. We want all of the passages in this sermon series to be passages we have not yet preached yet uh, on Sunday mornings here at City's Church. And so if you can make that happen, I'm like, man, okay, I know what passage I want to do, but I don't know if we preach. So I scurry over to my laptop. That's how I, I scurry. And so <laughs> scurry over my laptop and I jump on and I you know, type, in, uh, type in 2 Corinthians 5.21 and I look and I don't find any sermons on our website from this passage. And so I thought to myself, fantastic. I shot an email back to Pastor Jonathan and said, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I love this passage. I get very excited to talk about this passage. And the reason primarily is because uh, I believe this passage summarizes a doctrine that I hold very dear. It's a doctrine that's taught throughout the Old and New Testaments, but is, is summarized in just a few words here by the Apostle Paul. And that is a doctrine known as the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Now, I know those are $5 words, so we'll break them down in just a moment, I promise. If you're not familiar with the word imputation, I wasn't either until just a few years ago. Uh, the word impute just means to transfer, right? So you can think about imputation as transferring. So when we talk about the imputation of Christ's righteousness, we're talking about transferring the righteousness that's in Jesus to other people, mainly us, sinners who believe in God. Like that's ultimately what this doctrine says. And the reason why I love to introduce people or remind people of this doctrine, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, is because I am convinced, probably more than any other doctrine, that if we thoroughly believe this doctrine, it will set your heart ablaze for Jesus. I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced that people discovering this will fall in love with Jesus. This is exactly what happened in the 16th century with a man by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther rediscovered, along with many others during the Protestant Reformation, they rediscovered this doctrine that had been lost or blurry throughout the Middle Ages. It was rediscovered by many of those in the 16th century, and it it set their hearts ablaze. It transformed their lives and led to the Protestant Reformation, which transformed Europe and ultimately transformed the world. I am convinced that if we thoroughly understand and embrace this doctrine, we will see reformation in our own hearts and our own lives as well. And I'm not the only one convinced of this. I'll read you a quote from Pastor John Piper. He says this, I have watched this doctrine ignite both storms of controversy and great awakenings. So with a passion for reformation and revival, I long to see this precious truth, 
the imputed righteousness of Christ. I long to see it defended, known, and embraced. I too long to see reformation and revival in our lives. And so I passionately embrace and defend the doctrine known as the imputation of Christ's righteousness. My plan this morning is to go through some passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that allude to this truth, and then we'll come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and look at what the Apostle Paul has to say. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you have been so kind to us. You are so, so kind. You are merciful. You are gracious. You are slow to anger. You are rich in love. God, I... I praise you. Now I ask, God, that you would use the truths in your word this morning to transform your people. Would you use the truths of your word to set our hearts ablaze? May we walk out of this place more in love with Jesus. Would you use your truths, Lord, to mold us to be more like your son? May this truth, the doctrine of imputation, May it transform the way we live our lives, I ask. Would you be pleased to do that in our hearts and lives, I ask. Amen. <clears throat> well, first I want to start by actually recounting a few things that I said in a previous sermon. When we were going through the book of Galatians back in February, uh, we, I was looking at, I had the privilege of preaching through Galatians chapter 3 and highlighted some of the things that the Apostle Paul was teaching there in Galatians 3. Basically, in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul is making the case that Abraham has been declared righteous through faith. Paul is saying Abraham is counted righteous because he believed, and Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 15. If you don't remember the narrative of Genesis 15, that is where God promised to give Abraham and Sarah children. God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you children, which seemed highly unlikely because of their old age. It didn't seem likely that Abraham and Sarah, after 70 or 80 years of no children, would all of a sudden start having children. That seemed highly unlikely or even impossible. But God said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, Abraham. And Abraham believed God. Rather than rejecting God and what God said, Abraham said, okay, if God said it, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to take God at his word. I'm going to believe that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he promises to do. So Abraham said, yes, I believe you. I believe that I will be a father. And Genesis 15 tells us that that was enough for the Lord to count Abraham as righteous. That was his belief, not his lifestyle, not his behavior, not getting rid of sin. God said something and Abraham said, yep, I believe that's true. And that was enough for God to declare Abraham as righteous. That's the point that Paul is making in Galatians chapter three, and he is utilizing or reaching back to Genesis 15 to make that point in Galatians chapter three. So I talked quite a bit about that in the sermon back in February. And in that sermon, I used a particular sermon illustration, and I intend to use it again. It was just, we just thought it was really good. I figured it was the end. And Pastor Jonathan said it was okay to reuse it. Like there's no laws against reusing sermons or illustrations, right? So we're going to go with it. 
In, in that sermon back in February, I use a sermon illustration about the idea of swapping report cards with Jesus. Maybe you, maybe you were, were there. If you weren't, I'll, I'll give a quick recap. In essence, you could say it this way. There are ledgers in heaven that are keeping track of everything. This is kind of how I think about it in my brain. There are, there are ledgers in heaven keeping track of all that we do. And we are being graded on how we live in this life, how spiritual we are, how holy we are, how moral we are. We are being graded. We have a spiritual report card. The bad news is that our report cards don't look good. If we were to look at all of our report cards, we would all have straight F's on our spiritual report card. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. Jesus, however, also has a report card. He came to this planet, lived a perfect life, and he has a report card, but his report card looks very different than ours. It is a report card. His spiritual report card would be straight A's. So we've got straight F's. Jesus has straight A's in the spiritual accounting of heaven. And the offer that Jesus makes to us is that if we would believe him like Abraham did, then he would swap report cards with us. Jesus would say, listen, I'm going to take my report card of straight A's and I'm going to write your name over top of it with my own blood. And I'm going to hand it to you. And then I'm going to take your terrible report card and I'm going to take it and I'm going to write my name over top of it. And so that we stand before God with straight A's and he stands before the Father with straight F's. And we experience the benefits and the privileges of having straight A's on our spiritual report card. And Jesus suffers the consequences of the straight F's on his spiritual report card. Jesus is punished at the cross. That's the offer he makes. Would you believe me? Would you believe that I am who I say I am, that I will do what I promise to do? Would you simply take me at my word like Abraham did? If you will, we'll swap report cards. You will be declared righteous. That's the offer that Jesus makes us. Martin Luther in the 16th century called this the wonderful exchange. It's a glorious swap like none other. And it is through this action of righteousness. Jesus is righteous. He is in right standing with the Father, but he transfers that to us. And it is in this process that we are justified before God. The word justified refers to being forgiven, being declared not guilty, having our record wiped clean. We are sinners with a terrible report card, but that is, but the report card of Jesus is then transferred to us, so then we are justified. The record is wiped clean. By undergoing this wonderful exchange, we are then approved of by the Father and invited into his family to enjoy all of the privileges and benefits of being a child of God. This is a remarkable offer that Jesus makes us. So that's the, that was a recap of the sermon back in February from Galatians 3 and Genesis 15. This incredible offer that Jesus gives us. But I don't want you this morning just to have a a nice sermon illustration or a report card picture. It's not what I want. I want you to know that the scriptures teach this doctrine of imputation. 
I want you to know that this doctrine is not something we made up or conjured up because we thought it would be cool. We want you to know that this is a doctrine taught by the biblical authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so what I would like to do this morning is travel through several passages of Scripture and highlight the doctrine of imputation. And if you'd like to turn to Leviticus 16, you can do that. You're not obligated to. If you want to, you may. I'm going to start in Leviticus 16, and we're going to run through several passages of Scripture very quickly. When we get to Leviticus 16, by this point, the Jewish people, they've already been rescued from Egypt. They've already been pulled from Egyptian tyranny. The exodus has taken place. Several years have passed. They are in the wilderness, in the desert. Uh, The tabernacle has been built, and the sacrificial system is now being established and developed. And in Leviticus chapter 16... God gives some very specific instructions about an event that takes place once a year. This event is known as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And this is the day where the high priest makes offerings for the sins of the people. There was actually uh, multiple offerings that the high priest would make on that particular day, but there are two of them in particular that are for the sins of the people of God. And they, were, and they were involving two goats. The first goat would be, uh, would be taken into the tabernacle, it would be slaughtered, and the blood of that goat would be poured out on the altar. And the sins of God's people would be symbolically placed on the altar and the blood poured over. So that when God looks at the altar, he does not see our sin, he sees the blood covering, which is a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. Rather than God looking at you and seeing your sin, The blood of Jesus covers you, and so the Father sees the blood of Christ. Your sins have been blotted out. The second goat on the Day of Atonement carried out a different task. That goat would be kept alive, and that goat would be brought to the high priest. The high priest would put both of his hands on the head of the goat and would confess sins. All the sins of Israel would be confessed and would be then put on the goat. All of the sins of Israel would be transferred or imputed to this goat. And then that goat would be banished, would be exiled, sent out into the wilderness, into the darkness, never to be brought back again. And this is the first time in Scripture that we get this clear hint of this idea of imputation, where God is going to bring a sacrifice for all of our sins to be imputed to. And then that sacrifice that sacrifice would suffer the consequence. Well, Jesus is that sacrifice. Jesus is a sacrifice that God himself provides for us, which is why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says, Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the lamb that God has provided so that our sins could be imputed to him. That's, that's the goat. Fast forward 700 years to the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah 53 echoes the language of, the, of Leviticus. There's some, some clear allusions from Leviticus happening in Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah, he's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. He calls him the suffering servant. And he says this about the suffering servant. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus takes on our griefs and he carries our sorrows. 
And then later, the prophet Isaiah says about the suffering servant, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. On Jesus is the chastisement that brings us peace. We were not at peace with God. We were enemies with God. We were at odds with God. And yet Jesus takes on a chastisement which puts us at peace with God. Later in Isaiah 53, in the second half of verse 12, it says that the suffering servant, referring to Jesus, will be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus is going to be counted as if he's one of those sinners and be treated accordingly. Jesus, the righteous one, is treated as if he is unrighteous so that those of us who are unrighteous can be treated as if we were righteous. Every time I think about this, it blows my mind that God himself became the sacrifice. Fast forward 200 years to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 3. There's a vision that the prophet Zechariah has that gives us a greater picture of imputation. The prophet Zechariah has a vision of Joshua, the high priest, standing in the presence of God with filthy robes on. In fact, the, the language here is typically used to describe excrement. And so the high priest is standing in the presence of God with excrement stained robes and garments, standing before holy God. God could have condemned him, condemned him right there. What the high priest is wearing in this vision is polar opposite of what the high priest was supposed to be wearing when he's in the presence of God. The high priest was supposed to wear a very particular, elaborate outfit with, with clean and pure robes and linens. But here you have a high priest with excrement, stained and soiled garments. But in this vision, God shows mercy to the high priest and he instructs the angels to go take these garments off the high priest and then he instructs the angels to go to grab these pure robes that are in the presence of God so in this vision there are these robes that are in the presence of God they belong to God and and he instructs the angels take off the filthy garments off the high priest and take the the righteous robes and put them on him there's a swapping that takes place in Zechariah chapter 3. He calls them pure vestments. And by examining this vision, we get an idea of filthy robes being exchanged for pure garments. The prophet Isaiah actually prophesied about this in Isaiah 61. He says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. He has clothed us, clothed us with garments of salvation, robes of righteousness. We see this swapping taking place here in a vision in Zechariah. So these are some of the moments in the Old Testament that allude to this idea of imputation, this exchange that takes place where my sin gets put on Jesus and his righteousness get placed on me. 
and we are united to him through faith. Now we're going to fast forward to the New Testament. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, the Apostle Paul says that there is a righteousness that is now made available, he says, through faith in Jesus Christ. There is a righteousness being made available through faith. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul outlines how we receive this righteousness. And in chapter 4 of Romans, Paul is making the exact same argument that he made in Galatians chapter 3 that we talked about several months ago. The argument he is making is that if you believe the way Abraham believed, then you are counted as righteous. That's the argument that he is making. It's not about doing. It is about believing. God said it. I believe it. I take him at his word. Abraham, however, takes it a step further in Romans chapter 4. At the end of chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, the apostle Paul says this, that it was counted, that the words, it was counted to him. That phrase, it was counted to him was not only for his sake, referring to Abraham, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him. Paul's like, Abraham believed and he was declared righteous. He was counted righteous. But by the way, that wasn't just for Abraham. That was for all of you. All of you that would believe, you as well will be declared righteous. He is making it clear that we can be justified and declared righteous just as Abraham was. In Philippians chapter three, the apostle Paul says this. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's saying, I've acquired righteousness not because I fulfilled the law, not because I'm, I've been a good person or I've got lots of uh, social capital or I'm a moral guy. That's not why I'm righteous. I have a righteousness that came to me from God through faith. It was outside of me and then given to me. We call this alien righteousness. It was outside of me, but now placed on me is what the apostle Paul is saying there. And Paul makes it clear it is dependent upon my faith that I trust that he is who he says he is, that he will do what he said he will do. And that brings us to our primary text this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have that, feel free to open that or turn it on and scroll there. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on the letter to set to the the second letter to the Corinthians. Uh, In the preceding chapters and verses leading up to chapter 5, The apostle Paul is defending his apostleship. There were people in Corinth who were challenging the apostle Paul. They were saying things like, he's not wealthy. Some of these other Christian leaders are wealthy. They were saying things like, uh, he's always suffering and he's under persecution. We know lots of other great preachers that are never being persecuted. They were saying things like, Paul has to work manual labor. I mean, that, that seems silly. A man of God shouldn't have to do that. They were saying things like, Paul's not even a really good preacher. He's not a good public speaker. I mean, these other preachers are way better than Paul. Paul began to get questioned by people in Corinth. And for these reasons, they said, we're going we're gonna to start questioning Paul and stop listening to him and start listening to other people. And Paul gets wind of this. So he's, a def- he's defending his apostleship. He's like, no, no, I, I really am an apostle. 
It's actually really absurd to me that these guys would question because they wouldn't even be Christians without Paul. Like the church in Corinth was started by Paul. There would actually not be a church there to debate over these matters if Paul had not gone there. These guys wouldn't even be Christians if not for the ministry of Paul. So it's absurd they would question Paul, but that's what they're doing. And Paul boldly, clearly, and graciously responds to their accusations. He's defending, giving the reasons why he really is indeed an apostle. He says this, and he begins to expose the fact that they have been impressed by things like wealth and eloquence. He says, actually, you're so easily impressed by a good public speaker or someone who looks good or someone who's wealthy. It actually betrays Jesus. You've got your values all distorted. Like it actually shows that you're not as loyal to Jesus as you somehow you might think you are. He makes clear to them that they are wrong. And then he challenges them to consider things more important. He's like, you guys are so concerned about how good of an apostle I am, or if I'm really an apostle, you've gotten your eyes off of the most important thing. That's the gospel. You've gotten your eyes off the most important thing, spreading the gospel. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, he says this, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, trespasses against them. He said, don't you get it? In Christ, God is saving people. He's in the reconciliation business. And you guys are arguing about whether or not the apostle should be wealthy, or whether or not I work another job to support myself or whether or not it's appropriate for me to be under such persecution? Are you out of your mind? Have you, have you not, do you not see what God is doing? In Christ, he is reconciling people. God has made a way for people's sins to not be held against them. And you're squabbling about dumb things that don't matter? What is wrong with you, Corinthians? Paul's like, guys, don't you know there are people headed for hell? There are people right now separated from God that need to be reconciled. There are people that don't know that there's a way for their trespasses not to be held against them. Paul makes it clear to them that God is in the business of reconciling humans, and so should they. They should be in the business of propagating the gospel and making the gospel the center thing. Look at verse 20. He says this, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We are God's representatives. We are ambassadors. And God is making his appeal through us to the world. Cities Church, God is making his appeal to these twin cities through you. God is making his appeal to the people in your family, in your life, through you. Be focused on the gospel. God is making his appeal. There's a way for people to have their sins not counted against them. Let's be focused on making sure everyone around us knows that that is possible. It's our job to preach this good news. And then Paul reminds us what is at the heart of the gospel in verse 21. This is, this is the heart, the essence of the gospel message Paul reminds him this. Look at verse 21 with me. He says this. For our sake, he, speaking of God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus, Jesus who knew no sin. He had never sinned. He had never been acquainted or intimate with sin. He never knew it. But God made him to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin. God hates sin. Jesus became the very thing that God hates. The nature of Jesus didn't change. He was still truly God and truly man. But he was treated as if he was sin itself. He was counted amongst the transgressors. Counted as if he was sin, the thing that God hates. And he was punished as if he himself was sin. God punished Christ at the cross. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's a, there's a parallel language in this becoming. Jesus became something so that we would become something. He became sin so that we would become righteous. God would treat Jesus as if he is sin and would treat us as if we are righteousness. But not just any old righteousness, God's own righteousness, the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Two closing thoughts and then one pastoral exhortation for you. This doctrine was largely lost for hundreds of years during the Middle Ages. And the reformers spent tremendous effort and energy writing and preaching about this doctrine because they didn't want future generations to lose it. And they did a really good job because here we are 500 years later, passionately defending and embracing this doctrine. And this doctrine needs to be a part of all that we do. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century British pastor, often preached about justification and the imputation of righteousness. And people would say to him, why do you preach this so much? And here's how Spurgeon brought it up in a sermon. He said this, I think, dear friends, some of you will be saying, there is that old doctrine again. He continues to bring it up. And we are so continually hearing it. I make no sort of excuse. The doctrine of justification by faith through the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ is very much to my ministry what bread and salt are to the table. As often as ever the table is set, there are those things necessary. And I regard this doctrine as being that one to be preached, preached continually, to mix it into all of our sermons. Indeed, it is impossible to bring it forward too often. My soul has been counted righteous. This is a soul-saving doctrine. It is the foundation of foundations, the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can never be brought forward too often. Lesson from Spurgeon, we can never be reminded of this truth enough. In fact, we are often not reminded of it enough. 
Uh, Second note, closing note. It is important to mention justification and imputation of righteousness as not being progressive. Meaning, you don't grow in your status of being righteous. When you come to faith, it's not like you're a little bit righteous and then as you earn your way, you become more righteous before the Lord. It's not how it works. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you are declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ is put on you. So you are seen as being just as righteous as Jesus himself. The 19th century theologian, A.W. Pink, he put it this way. He said, the justification of the Christian is complete the moment he believes. Hence, there are no degrees. The apostle Paul was truly a justified man, declared righteous at the hour of his conversion, as he was at the close of his life. The feeblest babe in Christ is just as completely justified and righteous as the most mature saint. It's easy for us to think, I'm not good enough yet. That's not what the New Testament teaches. You've been declared righteous. One pastoral exhortation. When does this come up in our lives? If you're anything like me, I often beat myself up when I fail. When I sin, or I make, even if I make mistakes that are not sinful, or I feel like I've disappointed people around me, I have a tendency to really get down on myself often to really speak negatively to myself and to be very frustrated with myself. And I allow, I allow those negative emotions to kind of carry with me sometimes for multiple days. That's the moment where we pause and we remember that we've been justified. If you sin, you come before the Lord, you repent, he wipes you clean. There's no need to carry it for days and days and days. We continue to remember these things that God has already chosen to forget. We continually bring things up that have already been wiped clean. And so in the moments where we feel defeated, where we feel like we've sinned or we've blown it, that's the moment to pause and to say, I don't feel very righteous. I haven't behaved very righteous. But because of my belief in God, I have been declared righteous. And allow that to encourage your soul. In just a moment during communion, we're going to sing a song before the throne of God above. I just want to read two of the stanzas from it, two of the lyrics. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. When Satan tempts you to despair, you look to the one who declared you righteous. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me and pardon you. City's Church, if you are here today, if you are a believer in Christ, the sinless Savior died. He became sin for you. You've been justified, you have been declared righteous, and you are counted free. It was settled at the cross, and there ain't nothing you could do about it. 
You can't undo it because Christ settled it at the cross. You've been justified. You've been declared righteous. And we are now counted free. Church, that is a reason to celebrate this morning. That's a reason to celebrate. And that's why we come to this table every single week, to celebrate what Christ has done on our behalf, that Christ made it possible for our trespasses not to be held against us, that Christ became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In just a moment, the pastors are going to come. We're going to distribute the the elements, first the bread, then the wine. This meal is open here to anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower this morning, we we invite you to to take part in this meal. However, if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, if you are not a believer, I would ask that you would allow the bread and wine to pass. Don't partake this morning, but don't let the moment pass. If you believe in Jesus, you too can be declared righteous today. For anyone here who is a follower of Christ, we invite you to partake. We'll pass the bread first, hold it, and we'll all take together. The bread is gluten-free. Cities, church, we have been declared righteous by his body. That is the true bread. Let us serve you.